Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future. Brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the December jobs report and what it means for the economic outlook and the congressional agenda. Our guest is Gordon Gray, Director of Fiscal Policy at the American Action Forum, a center-right organization in Washington focused on economic, domestic, and fiscal policy issues. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins the conversation. Gordon's portfolio at the AAF includes the federal budget, taxes, the macroeconomic outlook, and other general economic policy matters. Prior to joining AAF, Gordon served as a senior policy advisor to Ohio Senator Rob Portman. Uh, He also served as deputy director of domestic and economic policy for Senator John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. Well, uh, Gordon, the recent jobs report, the December jobs report, uh, which was released on January 7th, is open to several different interpretations. Uh, Democrats are emphasizing that there was a drop in the unemployment rate down to 3.9. Seems very encouraging. Republicans, on the other hand, are pointing to the fact that there was a disappointing number of job gains under 200,000. It was substantially lower than expected. Uh, It always strikes me that before the pandemic, a gain of 199,000 would have been considered about par for the course or even even a good number. So anyway, uh, so you wrote in an AAF uh, a blog that it was a wintry mix, which was very appropriate because we were having a snow and ice storm <laughs> at about the time you released that. But what's your you know, what's the wintry mix? What's your key takeaways on the uh, jobs report? Yeah. So so fundamentally, I wanted to speak to both of those uh, views in the in the report. I, I have to con- concede from the jump that I was among the many uh, forecasters that was off by many hundreds of thousands in my uh, <laughs> guesstimate that uh, I, I put out before uh, the actual numbers uh, come out. Uh, so from from as relative to my own forecast, it was a disappointment. Um, but to be fair, um, and the the story that we're getting out of this jobs report is there's there's a number of things to to observe and and on on a little bit more reflection I actually think that the jobs report is a little stronger um, than maybe uh, even you know my own title suggested in, in, in by calling it a wintry mix like there are some things to to not love about it and the headline jobs number was less than we would want we're still below. Uh, where we were um, uh, b- before the pandemic uh, in terms of jobs, we still have some some ground to gain, and the magnitude of that challenge is in the millions. And so that's that's a real challenge. Nevertheless, there's some very good things in this report, and I think also that some of the the disappointment around the headline number uh, may be a function of some some things going on within 
um, the estimated within the surveys, and we may see bigger numbers in the revisions that get something of a, of a more um, uh, just uh, unalloyed good report. Uh, that's what I'm hoping. And so some of the good things I'm looking at is we do have um, two surveys in this report, the establishment survey or the, the payroll survey and the household survey. Now, the household survey uh, has started has been looking really strong, and and uh, this one showed employment growth of on the order of six hundred thousand, and we've seen um, in some recent months that the household survey has outpaced the uh, employment survey. The employment survey has always been viewed as sort of the more um, uh, the a little bit more integrity in that survey, just a little bit more reliable. But given all of the disruptions uh, to the labor market itself, but also to agencies, their collection processes, response rates, et cetera. I think we just need to be a little bit more open-minded about uh, observing all of these data uh, to understand what's going on in the labor market. And so um, there were some, uh, some, some disappointments in the survey, but also some very good indicators. I, I know Tori wants to ask more about those surveys, I think, but before we do that, I wanna, are there, were there anything about individual sectors that show where the economy is going? I mean, what's gaining strength and what's not? You know, so the, to be sure, when, when the, the coronavirus hit uh, in uh, the spring of, of 2020, so that, that March and April, and we lost about 22 million workers, you know, clearly um, forward-facing, um, sort of lower income uh, service jobs. These are the, the waiters, bartenders, et cetera. Leisure and hospitality got absolutely walloped. Um, I believe it was on the order of 8 million jobs lost. And they've regained about 7 million. And so that was clearly the, 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 the sector that we, a lot of us were looking at. You know, I think um, where a lot of people were able to, or, or a lot of people in the professional service economy were able to work from home or otherwise kind of remain protected from to, to an extent from uh, the labor uh, challenges uh, that the coronavirus have, have leveled at the economy. Um, a lot of service workers have not been able to. And so that's where I was paying uh, substantial attention uh, over the last year. But there's been um, broad-based gains uh, across industries. And so uh, when I look at the composition of, of the, the workforce now, uh, I'm actually very encouraged by um, uh, how broad-based those gains are and the degree to which um, these um, uh, these service workers have have found found jobs and found them in a context of rising wages. And so we've seen um, wages among uh, production and non-supervisory workers um, uh, increasing uh, at a very rapid clip, and that's that's been good to see. So, Gordon, um, you, you mentioned earlier that the, the jobs report that comes out every month is, is usually two different data points, right? There's the household survey where the government surveys people that have jobs, employees. And then there's the establishment survey or the employer survey where they, they query uh, employers and say, how many jobs have you added? One of the common themes about the jobs market data for this past year has been how divergent these two surveys have been. We've seen the unemployment rate drop precipitously. You know, we're now now at 3.9%. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I've never, I don't remember uh, an unemployment rate that, that low. And I mean, I'm not 
I'm not a baby, you know, so I've been around for a little while. And that, that's pretty low in, in, in my uh, experience with the, the economy. But then on the other hand, we've got the establishment survey, you know, where we're asking employers, how many jobs have you created or added this month? And those numbers have not been super stellar. We're still um, anywhere between three and four million jobs below where we were before the pandemic hit. And I'm wondering if you can, is, does anybody have any answers for why these two surveys seem to be going in different directions? I don't think that we have the answer, but we do have some uh, understanding uh, about how these surveys work, and then that can inform how to think about them when we look at the data. And so we can uh, try to reconcile uh, some of these stories, um, but, it, but we also have to recognize that this is, this is a moving target. And these surveys are right now in the process of being uh, benchmarked and revised. They, they tend to do major uh, benchmarking at the end of the year. And uh, it, they're kind of getting uh, tune-ups uh, for a lot of the, the moving parts in the economy. And that's, that's something that we're uh, happy to talk about because some of the underlying features of these surveys are, are animating the, the numbers that we're getting on in the Friday uh, jobs report. So, so you're right. So we have the establishment survey, which essentially asks um, uh, businesses, uh, and the composition of that survey um, is uh, stratified by business size, and so that they're they're trying to capture uh, a good snapshot of the of uh, employers as a whole. So I think it's about forty percent of the employers are have employees or have um, payrolls of less than of 20 employees or, or less. So you're getting a good segment of, of, of small businesses in there, but you're also getting large corporations. Um, plus, we also have some private, other private sector data payrolls from payroll processing companies. ADP is the most conspicuous example. So um, there's a lot of surveying of, of employers. But given that these are um, institutional from one perspective, that they're uh, viewed as a, as a stable and reliable measure of employment. Um, these data are then later um, reconciled with unemployment uh, insurance tax information. And you can't lie about that. So right. that has to be reliable. So there's a very good um, re reconciliation of, of, of the data on the, on the uh, employer side. So that's viewed as a very reliable survey. Then on the other um uh, side, you've got the household survey, and this is essentially the BLS um, posing questions to households. So, you know, did you have a job last week? Um, you know, were you sick? And, and, and uh, any number of, of, of questions. And they're not the same questions as are asked in the establishment survey necessarily. And so one of the, one of the interesting um, and, and one of the best examples, I think, uh, how to understand the surveys is actually uh, in a public, sort of emerged in a public policy debate. There was um, at uh, during the Great Recession, uh, there was sort of the, this this notion that sure people were were getting back to work, but they're going back to like five jobs. They can't get one good job. They got to take on five different jobs. And these surveys tell very different stories about that experience. For example, so uh, the household survey. Um, uh, would capture that. Whereas the establishment survey is um, did is from the employer's perspective, did someone get a new job? So when those numbers go up, that's not somebody working five jobs. That's that's one of those jobs. So 
Um, the data that those surveys collect are from different audiences and often different questions. And so they tell slightly different stories uh, about what's going on. And so when we see the data, we have to understand sort of where it's coming from so we can know what, what this, the story they're telling. And so um, in, in, in this instance, one of the challenges is one of the things that the, the establishment survey uh, has to navigate is that at any given day, any week, any month, businesses are being started, businesses are, are failing, uh, and this is business births and deaths. And this is something that the, uh, the surveys have to grapple with on an ongoing basis over the course of the year. But to do that um, reliably, again, takes that reconciliation process with unemployment data, et cetera. And so they kind of have, they do this on a modeling basis during the year. And given all of the churn in the economy over the last couple of years, that process is going to be a little um, uh, rocky, so to speak, because you've had so much churn in the economy. And so um, all of these features, all of the volatility in, in the measurement and also within the economy itself um, just means, I think, for observers, we have to recognize that there's there's just a lot going on within the, the data itself. And we um, uh, probably need to not uh, we it is always the case that these data are noisy and we shouldn't uh, make too much out of a single month. But I think this is all the more true. And and when when the data are telling somewhat different stories, we need to sort of think about why that may be. And, and mm -hmm. part of it is how this, the surveys are constructed and then also what's going out, what else is going on in the economy. One of the adjectives I've heard used frequently with respect to this this type of churn that you're talking about is very frothy. Things yes. are very frothy. <laughs> Indeed. Exactly. Yeah. One thing that's uh, also frothy. One one thing that's also frothy is inflation. People are getting good wage gains, uh, particularly at the uh, lower income levels. If you, as you've said, uh, are there wage gains keeping up with inflation, or not? So, <laughs> no, un unfortunately, they're not. And um, you know, real real earnings um, were are down one point nine percentage points uh, over the year. Um, on the whole. And for production and non-supervisory workers, they're down, I think, 1.6% uh, over the year. So fundamentally, um, even though nominal earnings gains for, uh, for workers have been strong, um, inflation has outpaced them. One of the questions is um, that economists look at and the Fed looks at is, have we reached full employment? So we're, we've got all these job gains and the unemployment rate is very, very low, almost back to where it was pre-pandemic. So where are we in terms of uh, reaching full employment? Are we at that magic number? I'm glad I'm not on the Fed, first of all, because it's because because here's what's I mean, here's here's what we have in front of us. Right. So we have an economy or a labor market that in many ways is acting like a duck and quacking like a duck. It is um, there is, you know, the the. Uh, the beverage curve, you know, with with uh, the ratio of, of job openings to unemployment um, appears um, robust. The um, nominal wage gains are strong. Um, uh, the relationship between um, job quits and reduction in unemployment, even the broadest measures of unemployment, the U6 is um, has has declined. U6 has declined by um, 
uh, half of a percentage point in the last two months each. Um, one more uh, decline like that. Gordon, could you define U6 for? Yeah, uh, sure, absolutely. So, unem- uh, thank you for asking. Uh, 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 the unemployment rate, the headline unemployment rate um, that everybody uh, looks at is is actually the U3, um, and it is basically. Um, the ratio of uh, the number of, of workers who are unemployed uh, over uh, the number of workers who are actively looking for a job. Um, and um, when you, but, but that, that surely doesn't, doesn't characterize the totality of the labor market. You have people who are, um, uh, who want a job, but aren't necessarily actively applying uh, so you have a continuum of labor market participation, and the U3 is kind of the um, the the consensus measure of or, or a measure of of um, uh, kind of substantially uh, captures um, those people who are who you would generally characterize as all right. These are people who are who we should view as our labor force, and that's kind of how we define our labor force. Or the narrowest are, definition. What's well, yeah. Um, well, and then you have a narrower definition depending on sort of uh, how long you've been looking, et cetera. But, but yeah, fr- uh, fundamentally, the labor force is, is um, the, the denominator used in the unemployment rate. Um, but when you, you can broaden that uh, to include people who may not be actively looking, but people who, are, who still want a job, people who've um, you know, lost hours, people who've had to work part time. Uh, because of the economy, and so when you um, when you broaden the denominator, um, and there's a little bit of change to the, the numerator there too, but uh, you get a broader measure of unemployment, and that's the the number that we call the U6, and um, it is a more expansive measure, uh, and so it um, it it and because that it's a bigger number, so some people uh, don't, uh, and since we all. Uh, I'm talking from Washington, D.C., so I can't ignore the political context. So there's always from whichever administration is there or whoever has sort of a vested interest in, in the outlook for the administration usually doesn't like the bigger number. Um, and, and the inverse is true for if you're not not in power. But it does tell an important story that observers need to be mindful of. And, and we're getting close to one of the all time lows in, in the U6, one more uh, half a percentage point decline. Um, we'll get to 6.8%. And so when you have the broadest measure of unemployment at uh, or approaching all-time lows, um, the, the, the normal unemployment rate in, with a three-handle, nominal wage gains um, looking incredibly strong, it is acting like an economy at full employment. And, and there's certainly nothing in the report, in my view, to dissuade the Fed from its, you know, its likely course of, of tightening um, next year. Uh, but then again, there's a lot of other things out uh, going on in this labor market that are unique and, and, and strange. And so um, I think, like I said, the, the indicators that we've been getting from the labor reports shouldn't dissuade the Fed from their, their, their likely course of action, um, but they're going to have to play, uh, pay close attention uh, as they, they proceed with tightening uh, monetary policy. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and I are talking with Gordon Gray, Director of Fiscal Policy at the American Action Forum. 
about the December jobs report and its implications for the future. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with Gordon Gray, Director of Fiscal Policy at the American Action Forum. We're discussing the December jobs report and the implications for the future. And uh, we were talking about how these monthly reports uh, sometimes have a lot of well, not fluff, but sometimes confusion, chaff or something that's uh, and uh, when you look at them on an individual basis, it's not always clear what's going on. We talked about a number of factors, but uh, Tori, you had another uh, factor that can complicate the interpretation of these reports. Yeah, Gordon, I just wanted to ask you real quickly about seasonal adjustment factors. You know, a a lot of our economic data has a seasonal component to it, Um, you know, consumers spend big at Christmas time. And so we adjust our spending data to account for that. Um, They adjust our our jobs data too. A lot of companies will hire uh, temporary seasonal employees around the holidays. And so our, our, our data models will accommodate that so we can get a consistent picture of what jobs look like over the course of a year. And I, I have to wonder, especially after you know an experience that was so stark uh, this summer, where we saw this huge spike in teacher employment in July, you know, when we'd normally expect teacher employment to jump up in, in August. So you had this sort of big flip flop where we had a big job number in July and a very disappointing job number in August. And it made me start to wonder, hey, have we got our seasonal adjustment factors wrong? Or are they somehow influencing these, 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 these weird establishment job numbers, job data that we're seeing? Yeah, this is a great point, and uh, this is definitely one of those sort of moving parts that uh, these uh, survey data that we just have to understand a little bit uh, to to get a sense of what the data, what story the data are telling. And at a time when there's a um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, risk, for want of a better term, to 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 each one of these elements of these, these surveys, right? So you have um, declining response rates. So just the, the number of people who re- respond to these surveys is going down. You had uh, some of the BLS offices were you know, shut down during uh, COVID. So you have sort of underlying challenges to the survey collection process. And then um, one of the uh, more black box aspects of these surveys is the seasonal uh, seasonal adjustment, and and you explained it, um, I think, really well. Um, these uh, seasonal adjustment just try to smooth out some of these uh, features of the labor market that are are uniquely seasonal. So things like uh, teacher flow, uh, you know, over the uh, over the summer, uh, Christmas hiring, things like that, so that we really get a sense of. Um, what is going on in the underlying labor market, not as um, what is going on in December because it's December. Um, that doesn't tell us a great, a great story. And um, one of the things we've seen in November and December is that the seasonal factor that their computers spit out um, has been um, subs- way low uh, relative to the, the, the historical experience. Um, that doesn't mean it's wrong. The, the challenge is, 
is you don't know what's right and what's wrong um, because it's a um, it, they have uh, statistical models that, that spit these out. I, I can't replicate them sitting here on my Excel spreadsheet. Right, right, right. Um, it's a function of um, tremendous amounts of data and, 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 and um, analysis. But um, what do we do know is that the last two seasonal factors have been uh, historically aberrant. And um, we've also seen that revisions uh, have been substantially biased upwards. So that those two two aspects to me suggest, okay, the seasonals are um, contributing to undercounting in the in the payroll uh, survey. And we're coming to the end of the year, and which which um, is when uh, and uh, or beginning in uh, for the new year, they, they update all these seasonals based on obs- observations over the course of the year. So it's kind of like, we're, you know, we're getting to the end, like the, the, the car needs an oil change. <laughs> True up, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that's one of the things going on is that the seasonals are just, just a little, a little out of whack. <laughs> so when we see the revisions, I think um, big revisions are going to be a function of some of these seasonals needing some updating. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of things that are a little out of whack, let's turn to Capitol Hill and uh, and talk about the budget. <laughs> talk about the budget process. Uh, yeah, I, I I say the budget process as if there were such a thing anymore. As if there were, right? Um, but we all we all honor it in the breach. Um, so uh, Congress has a few things on their plate, uh, uh, and I know you've thought about the priorities and some of the time deadlines they're facing. Uh, why don't you highlight some of those for us? Clearly, the, a lot of all the attention on Capitol Hill uh, remains on the, the majority's uh, domestic agenda and what will um, Congress work on for the rest of the year. Um, clearly, um, the Build Back Better Act um, has run into some challenges. These are challenges that have been widely known um, for months, and this is, these challenges will be, have to be uh, bridged if um, a bill gets, uh, gets to the president's desk. It had been, and to some extent remains, my um, expectation that uh, the congressional majority will get something signed. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Here's why a lot of people have a lot of a lot invested in something getting done. And that includes Joe Manchin. <laughs> right. So the outlook on, on BBB is a function of, of a political process. And um, uh, and uh, but also um, there is a policy process and then there's a very narrow legislative process um, through which a bill would would likely have to be enacted. That legislative process has uh, time constraints, um, and uh, there's a time that a, a bill can be on the floor under reconciliation. There's time that a budget resolution um, and budget reconciliation instructions, uh, the, how long those are live. Um, these clocks are ticking, but my own view is that they're not ticking so fast that uh, the congressional majority can't get something done uh, if they don't uh, you know, can't get something done if they if they really want to. The ACA was passed in March. Um, uh, you know, after quite a few political um, births and deaths. So um, I, I, I remain of the view that something will get done, but um, uh, the next several months is is when that will need to occur. Need to occur. 
I was going to say, I think as long as as soon as the Democrats recognize that pushing on Joe Manchin is like pushing on a string, you know, <laughs> then maybe they'll get something done. But I, I, I think trying to manipulate him into some sort of of, of package, I mean, the, the, the more contrarian he is, the, the more he angers Democrats, the better he looks at home. So and right. I think the minute they realize that political calculation maybe they'll get something done, but I agree with you. It is political suicide. It was, it's like a dereliction of duty to not get something done before right. the 2022 and, elections. And, and, and um, this is somewhat inside baseball, but you have budget reconciliation instructions with a pretty big allowance to do an awful lot of things that mm-hmm. house members have voted on publicly. You've got an HR bill that can't, you know, uh, that came from the, uh, from the house, you know, a revenue measure, they've got all of the tools, the things they need, all of the tools to spend money on things they want. It won't be the composition that they, they necessarily want, but they have the opportunity to check a lot of the boxes they want to. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that argument will eventually prevail over sort of, I don't know. I think we're going to get a month of performance and then maybe a little bit of legislating. <laughs> Yeah, it almost seems like uh, this being football playoff season, um, they're, they're standing at the goal line. They're about a foot off, and they're trying to design razzle-dazzle plays, and you think, just do a quarterback sneak. Just put the ball over the goal line. Yeah. It, well, I mean, it kind of feels like they're, they're down on the goal line, and they're just using up all their timeouts to, to no yeah. obvious effect. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I don't entirely get it, but um, I'm – well, that's why none of us are working up on the hill as strategists, right? That's now. right. <laughs> Clearly, we don't get it. One thing they're going to have to do is pass appropriations bills in February, uh, and uh, you know, for f- both uh, Tory and and uh, and Gordon, uh, what do you think? I mean, are we going to face a shutdown scenario? They're going to compromise. They're going to add things onto it. What do you think? Uh, my my own view is that. Um, you know the uh, the the first the first challenge in 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 these negotiations is just agreeing to a top line number, and then um, once you get that, then that kind of sets the sets the table, uh, and then um, that is an entree to some other additional fights. Um, and I feel like they are close to an agreement on a top line number um, based on the reporting I've I've seen. Um, and they they have time to get closer or further apart between now and and um, February eighteenth, I believe, um, yeah, is yeah. when when CR runs out. Uh, so um, I, I um, you know there there is time for this process to unfold and to develop. Uh, but my my general sense is that they're close on a top line. We're heading into the midterms, and so that raises the the specter of of shenanigans, which is to say uh, policy riders. Um, that are, uh, mess, you know, primarily about messaging, primarily about um, appealing to uh, the uh, political bases of the majority and the minority. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, threatens um, orderly appropriations. Yeah. <laughs> I have a sense, again, um, if recent past is, 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 is prologue, I'd like to think the sort of adult moment that happened, well, adult moment uh, in a very senatorial sort of way, I guess. <laughs> the, the way they managed to navigate themselves out of the corner on the debt limit 
recognize they do no harm view uh, from the minority. I, I think there is something of uh, a sense that they that the minority thinks that their political prospects are good uh, for the midterms. There is an argument that is not always prevailing that you should not screw things up if things are looking good for you. <laughs> you know, like but like we like we said, well, I'm not a strategist. So <laughs> uh, maybe that's not a winning message. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh Tori, I want to get your thoughts, but that'll have to await our next segment uh, because we're running out of time for this one. Um, So, uh, Gordon, um, thank you for joining us today. Um, It's been a really good discussion and uh, uh, certainly enjoyed uh, having you. Um, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori and I are going to be right back after these short messages when we'll be joined by Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and Concord Coalition Chief Economist, Steve Robinson, are joining me to continue the discussion of the December jobs report and the congressional agenda. Steve, we heard uh, a lot about the jobs report, but I I did want to get uh, your take on it as uh, Concord's Chief Economist. Uh, in uh, 30 seconds or so. <laughs> well, not, not really. what, version. Everybody can, uh, there's been lots of different interpretations of this report, what it means and whether it really means much of anything because it's only one report. But go ahead. What are your big takeaways? Well, I mean, you guys touched on this a little bit and, and I wanted to just maybe reemphasize, uh, you know, there are multiple employment surveys um, and, and relate this back to the federal budget because you know we have the employment survey, which is a survey of employers, and that counts people on payrolls. And those, in some cases, could be two people, or, or I'm sorry, one person working in multiple jobs for multiple companies. So you don't know, you know, multiple job holders show up very differently in the employment survey than they do in the household survey. Mm-hmm. So you know, you survey employers and you ask who's on your payroll, but they don't ask two employers do you guys have the same employee on your payroll? Because the employers don't talk to each other. So there's really no way to know that. Now, in theory, the household survey takes care of that because you ask a person, are you working? And are you working multiple jobs? And in fact, that's one of the questions and that's one of the data points you can get, how many people are holding multiple jobs? Uh, But the other interesting question, this came up uh, back in 2020, and that is how many people work over the entire year. In other words, the the household survey and the employer survey is the average employment in any given month of the year. And those numbers, depending on whether you're including the self-employed or not, which is the household survey and not the employer survey, is 140, 150 million jobs. Interestingly, back in 2020, uh, when we had the pandemic, this issue came up because of, of, of social security, because social security benefits are indexed to average wages. And average wage is total employment divided by total wages. And that's not total monthly average employment, it's total employment for the year. So the question became, how many people are employed throughout the year? So as you have an immigrant who wasn't here one month, he comes to the country, he's now in the, in the employment and he's employed at some point during the year. You have retirees who work for part of the year and then they retire and they leave the workforce. So the idea of monthly average employment gets you one number, but total employment throughout the year, cumulatively, knows how many people had a job at any point during the year. And that number is closer to 170 million. 
And so the issue became back in 2020 was, well, we had the big pandemic. We had all these people who were employed in January and the pandemic hit and they lost their job. There was about 20 million people who, who fell out of the workforce. Those tended to be lower paid workers. So you saw this interesting phenomenon where the average wage went up. And it wasn't because the average wage went up. It was because all the low wage workers dropped out of the workforce. And so the remaining workers were the higher paid workers. So by definition, the average went up. And so there was all of this debate in the social security community as, well, what's going to happen to average wages for purposes of social security? Are average wages rising or average wages falling? And it ultimately depended on what were wages plus how many people would be employed. Now, it turned out, despite some of the predictions of doom and gloom, that average wages were going to go down and social security benefits would go down, and that would be terrible. Um, and in fact, none of that happened. It turned out that employment didn't fall enough. And to the extent that it fell, it was among lower wage workers. So the average wage actually went up during 2020, during the pandemic, which was a bit of a surprise to, to a lot of people. Let's turn from the jobs report and uh, look again at the congressional agenda. There was something that's surprising that happened this week, which was uh, that the Speaker of the House invited the president to come up to the Capitol to give his State of the Union address on March 1st, mm -hmm. which is uh, considerably later than uh, normally. Tori, what uh, do you think that tells us anything about the president's agenda and strategy? Well, I think it's clearly uh, Speaker Pelosi giving the, the House and the Senate and President Biden time, the Democrats in the chambers, time to get some sort of an accomplishment on Build Back Better and funding the government for fiscal 22 before having the president come up and give a State of the Union speech so he can use that speech to take a victory lap. Um now, that obviously puts a lot of pressure on lawmakers and the president to get something done before March, because if they don't get anything done before March, they still have nothing to talk about. So we'll see whether or not that was a wise political decision. Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a high hurdle for some of the things that he wants to get done, uh, mm -hmm. you know, particularly on the Build Back Better Act or voting rights, uh, voting rights or is um, I just thought that was very interesting timing. Um, while we're on this subject, uh, we 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 kind of left things with uh, without getting your take on the uh, uh, upcoming appropriations bill. So they've got to get things done by February 15th. Uh, that's the last temporary continuing resolution that they passed uh, took us to February 18th. So we've got uh, we've got a little ways to go. What's uh, what are some of the challenges there and uh, what's your take on what they where they might come out? Yeah, well, I think uh, unlike past years, I don't think the, the, the top line funding numbers are going to be that difficult to reach agreement on. And, you know, it's one of the things we used to say in Congress is that, you know, in normal times, you've got Republicans and Democrats. But when it comes time to spending money, there are Republicans, Democrats and appropriators. And the appropriators tend to side with the Democrats to, to pass uh, annual funding bills. So. I, I don't think the spending levels are going to are the problem that's holding up appropriations at this point in time. I actually think it's the policy writers that are going to be a problem. Um, there are you know policy writers relating to the border wall down on the southern border. There are policy writers regarding family planning issues that are always hot button issues. And the question becomes is is whether or not. Uh, enough Republicans can get along with enough Democrats to come up with with um, language that that gets the requisite 60 votes in the Senate. And, you know, I, I think eventually you'll get there. Um, you know, uh, Leader McConnell, the Republican major minority leader in um, the, the Senate, you know, he 
that the Republicans are sitting in a good place when it comes to the 2022 elections. And so their first mantra should be do no harm. And I don't see, you know, they, they, there really isn't a lot of, of, of there, there isn't a good reason for them not to agree to appropriations uh, at, at this point within, within reason. So I think McConnell will, will squirrel together enough Republicans to vote alongside Democrats and getting something uh uh, for full year appropriations for for all the different agencies, as long as Democrats don't really go off the reservation uh, on some of these policy writers and demand things that are just sort of beyond the pale. One thing that we're beginning to hear rumors of is a, another COVID relief bill, and um, like to get uh, both of you to comment on that in terms of. Uh, well, whether it's needed, the, the substance of it, uh, what it, where it might be useful or not useful, and whether there's a possibility of attaching that to the uh, year-end funding. Year-end meaning February mm-hmm. 18th, the, uh, the expiring continuing resolution. Yeah. Steve, you want to go first? First mover advantage? <laughs> well, you know, it's still maybe a little too early to tell. I mean, the, the, the latest data suggests that the, the Omicron uh, variant is potentially going to cause a spike, and that's, you know, potentially going to affect the, the labor market, you know, pretty severely. Uh, but then again, if it turns out, you know, that, that people are, are right, that the Omicron is less severe, and that it's not going to cause the, the kinds of, of sickness and hospitalization and deaths that we've seen in, with previous variants, variants, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, it, it could be that we're back to where we were a year ago and the economy and, you know, employers are scrambling for workers and businesses are closing and there's a strong need to, to have some relief in terms of unemployment or, or one-time payments or something. But, you know, we, we may dodge a bullet and it may turn out that, that, that the effects are not that severe and you know, ultimately, everybody's going to get the virus, and we're all we're all going to be we're all going to you know have the the natural herd immunity because uh, you know you've got a thirty percent of the population that says they don't want to get vaccinated, and it's like well, if they wait long enough, they're they're going to have natural immunity because they're going to get they're going to get the virus, and so you know at some point we may come out of this fine, and no additional relief is needed, but you know February may be a little too early to know that, um, so. You know, I suspect there'll be a lack of a consensus that early. If things get worse, clearly Congress will come together and they'll pass something in the spring, but we may not know in February. So I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian and say that, you know, I think the way out of this is testing, not only more tests, but better tests. Uh, and I think the only way to get those out uh, into the hands of people is to make them ubiquitous and free. And so I, I, I can see the case for more COVID relief uh, spending um, that focuses a lot on testing. And I think that's something that that Republicans and Democrats could agree on. Yeah, because there's been a lot of criticism of the administration for not being up to speed on testing. So if they come along with a request for more for testing, it might get some bipartisan support. On the other hand, the argument will be we already appropriated all this money. They just haven't Either they haven't spent it or they've diverted it to other things. Well, the the other route, though, I, I saw in the news this morning, um, the administration is going to, or at least they propose to require insurance companies to cover up to 
to eight free tests a month. Hmm. So, you know, if you're not going to appropriate the money, you just do an unfunded mandate and make the insurance companies eat it. And that ultimately, of course, will show up in, in higher insurance premiums. But ultimately, uh, that's that's a completely different approach to get the testing if that's the route they go. Well, we're going to we're going to find out. Uh, of course, it's always possible with Congress that they'll uh, pass a rescue bill after the uh after the crisis has passed and then <laughs> and it will just then it'll be around to help fund the next crisis well that's all we have time for this week uh, i want to thank our previous guest gordon gray of the american action forum for his insights and thanks to steve and uh, tori and thanks to you for tuning in this is your host bob bixby i'll be back next week with another edition of facing the future 